thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. On this week's show, we're kicking off Senses Month with a programme all about hearing. In the next hour, I'll be exploring how our ears decode the hubbub around us, meet people who can do incredible things with sound, and find out how science can help when the world starts to go quiet. I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Apart from allowing us to listen to our favourite music, and the Naked Scientist of course, hearing as a sense is fairly important. Hearing is really our only long-range, panoramic, early warning system. So whether you're in the dark or walking along the street with your eyes open, you can hear sounds coming from all around you all of the time. And you're incredibly good at detecting when new sounds occur, which could signal some kind of threat. And so evolutionarily, it's clear why... Hearing is so important because if you want to avoid being eaten or find something to eat, then being able to hear where new sounds come from is, is really useful to you. That's Jenny Bisley from UCL. So how does this all work? It's a $50,000 question. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, and we'll hear more from Jenny later. But before we look at how hearing works, we better look at what a sound actually is. Sounds are caused by vibrations. When something, let's say a drum, is beaten, the vibrations cause a displacement of the particles around it. And then, like ripples in a pond, this vibration travels outwards from the source in the form of a wave. Imagine a sound wave, up and down and up and down. There are really only two bits of information contained in one of these, what we understand as volume and pitch. How tall the waves get, which is the difference between the top and bottom, means it's a bigger vibration and it's a louder sound. The closer apart the wave peaks, the higher the frequency, which is what we experience as pitch. And the further apart these are, the lower the sound. But if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? So this is where our ears come in. Professor Brian Moore at the University of Cambridge has been investigating how our auditory system works for 50 years. So he took me on a guided tour of our ear. Sounds enter the ear canal and travel down to the eardrum, which is like a drum of a drum, and that causes the eardrum to vibrate. And in turn, those vibrations are transmitted through three tiny bones in the middle ear called the malleus, the incus and the stapes. And these are the smallest bones in the body. When I was in school, we called them the hammer, anvil and stirrup because of their distinctive shapes. And the third of those bones, the stapes, that's the stirrup. Makes contact with an organ called the inner ear, which is also called the cochlea. The part that's concerned with sound is the cochlea. And the cochlea is encased in very rigid bone, but there's a small 
membrane-covered opening, and the stapes rests on top of that opening, and so the sound is getting in through that small opening in the bone. Now, the magic starts to happen inside the cochlea. That's where the analysis of sounds first takes place. Now, the cochlea is filled with fluids, and there's a kind of ribbon that runs along the length of the cochlea that's called the basilar membrane. And the basilar membrane is kind of rather flexible and wide at one end, and it's narrow and stiff at the other end. And because of those physical properties, each place along the membrane is tuned to a different frequency. So the end that's closest to the stapes is called the base of the cochlea, and that responds best to high frequencies. And the other end is called the apex, and that responds best to low frequencies. So there's a kind of analysis of the different frequencies that are present in the sound. So we have the sound banging on the drum, the eardrum and travelling along these three tiny bones before being transferred into the cochlea. On most diagrams, this cochlea looks like a snail shell, and inside is this basilar membrane, which separates sounds out to their different pitches. But before we even get to the brain, our ear has another trick up its sleeve, one we didn't know anything about until recently. There's a, a very wonderful thing that's only really been discovered in the last 20 years, and that's an active biological mechanism that actually amplifies the vibrations on the basilar membrane. And this active mechanism depends on the operation of specialised types of cells called outer hair cells. And these outer hair cells behave like miniature motors and they actually feed energy back into the basilar membrane and amplify the response. And they also sharpen up the the tuning. So each place is much more narrowly tuned to a specific frequency than would be the case if you didn't have this so-called active mechanism. And this active mechanism is crucial for letting us hear very soft sounds. And the weakest sounds that we can detect produce a vibration of the eardrum that's only the size of the diameter of a hydrogen atom. It's really a very tiny vibration that we can detect. And this all depends on the operation of these outer hair cells. There are still many aspects of these processes that we don't understand, including this this active mechanism in the cochlea. Although we know that it's there, exactly how it works is still not fully understood. But what we do know is that you can detect its effects relatively easily. And one remarkable thing is an effect called the cochlea echo. When you put a sound into the ear... As a result of the operation of this active mechanism, sounds actually come back out of the ear that you can measure in in the ear canal. That's incredible. So it's not just our mouths making sounds, our ears are doing it, albeit very quietly too. That's right. Our ears are actually generating sound. Another interesting thing is that this active mechanism is partly under the control of the brain. So the, the brain actually sends signals down to the cochlea to control the operation of the active mechanism. So even the mechanical vibrations produced on the basilar membrane are partly influenced by the brain. No one 20 years ago had even thought that that was a possibility, that the brain is indirectly controlling what we hear by controlling the operation of the cochlea. So how does this information get transported into our brains? Within the the cochlea, there's another type of uh, hair cell called inner hair cells, which are like 
the microphones of the ear. They're detecting these vibrations on the basilar membrane and converting them to an electrical signal. And that electrical signal, if it's strong enough, can lead to what are called nerve spikes or action potentials in the auditory nerve. The more intense the sound is at a given place on the basilar membrane, the more action potentials you get. And so information is signaled to the brain as a kind of digital code in terms of these patterns of action potentials in different neurons and how rapidly those action potentials are occurring. Professor Brian Moore from Cambridge University there. So next comes the even harder part. How do we decode this hubbub into anything meaningful? It's essentially just a bunch of different pitches and volumes reaching our ears. Here's Jenny Bisley again. So we have some clues about how the brain does this. So we know, for example, that many natural sounds, like people's voices, have a pitch associated with them. And sounds with a pitch tend to be harmonic. So that means that they have some fundamental frequency, the lowest frequency, which is what we think of as the pitch. Um, So, for example, for the A string on a cello, that's 220 hertz. But there'll also be energy at, at multiples of that. So at 440, 660, 880 and so on. It helps to imagine it as a ladder, where each step represents energy at a different frequency. We interpret it as one lovely tone, but really it's many layered over the top of each other. Our voices do this too. And the brain is aware of that kind of pattern, so it it will be able to essentially associate sounds that have that, or sound components that have that harmonic structure, and group them together. And, And we know that it does that because if in the lab we create a sound that that is harmonic but we mess around with it so that we take one of those particular harmonics and and shift it a little bit in frequency, then actually perceptually you'll go from hearing a single note to actually hearing two distinct sound sources. There are other cues that your brain can use. So sound components that come from the same source tend to change together in time, so they'll get louder together and quieter together. And they'll also tend to come from the same place in space. So... There are all of these hints that the brain can can use to try and make a model of how how the sounds that have arrived at the ear have, have actually sort of existed in the world beforehand. Do we use any other sort of senses when we're trying to de- uh, untangle this mess? We, without really realising it, integrate information across our senses all of the time. So this is particularly true for vision and for hearing. So there are specific examples you can think of where integrating visual information with what you hear can be helpful to you. So, for example, our ability to localise a sound in space is really good. We can tell apart sounds that are about one degree difference, that's sort of the width of your thumb at arm's length. But vision is sort of 20 times better than that. So it makes sense that you integrate information about where you see something coming from with where you hear it coming from. Another example of when it's really helpful to be able to see what you're trying to listen to is if you're listening to a voice in a, in a noisy situation, so a, a restaurant or a bar, if you can see a speaker's mouth movements, then that actually gives you additional information about what they're saying. So the mouth movement that you make for, for example, a f sound is very different from the mouth movement that you make for a b sound. But at even more lower level, trying to sort of tackle this problem of how when you're faced with a really complicated sound mixture, you separate it out into different sound sources, then actually 
if you're looking at a sound source, so for example, someone's mouth, if you look at someone's mouth, you're getting a rhythmical signal where the mouth gets wider as the voice gets louder and smaller as the voice gets quieter. And even the way that someone's perhaps moving their hands as they're speaking is giving you another sort of rhythmical cue. And we've recently learned that actually that very sort of basic information is enough to help you actually group together the sound elements that come from a sound source that's changing at the same time as what you're looking at. And that actually allows you to separate that sound source out from a mixture more effectively. You mentioned there um, separating out where a sound is coming from. So what do we know about how our brain works this out? In the auditory system, we have to rely on the fact that we have two ears. And actually, the brain has to detect incredibly tiny differences in timing and sound level that occur between the two ears. So if you have a sound, for example, to your right, then it's actually going to hit your right ear slightly sooner than your left ear, and it's going to be louder in that ear. And your brain is incredibly sensitive to these tiny differences in timing and sound level. We're talking about really fractions of a second here. And there's a third cue that you can use, which is that as the sound is funneled into your ear, it passes through the pinna, which is the part of the ear that you sort of see on the side of the head. And it has all of these kind of complicated folds on it. And as the sound comes in, it'll interact with those complicated folds in a way that depends on where the sound source comes from. And they actually effectively filter the sound and give characteristic notches in the frequency spectrum, which give you information about where a sound source originated from. Well, it's good to know there's a reason our ears look so odd. That was Jenny Bisley from University College London's Ear Institute. But if you've eaten in a noisy restaurant, you'll know one of the biggest challenges we face can be to hear someone else talking. Speech is so complex and it's difficult to make out if there are lots of other sounds. But our brain has a neat trick up its sleeve. Dr Thomas Cope is a neurology registrar and researcher at Cambridge University. So the important thing to always remember is that your brain is not just representing what's going on in the outside world. It's representing an interpretation of what's coming into you through your senses. So if I'm talking to you now in a quiet room, you're predicting as you're going along what the next word that I'm going to say is. So if I said to you, I'm just popping out to the shop to buy some, you would have a list of things that are most likely for me to say next. Top of that list might be milk and then bread and then there'd be sort of less common words lower down. And when you then get information from your senses, you are comparing that information against your prediction to see, was I right or wrong? Do I need to do a lot of work in processing this auditory information to work out what it was? Or was the start of it like milk and therefore it's probably milk and can I just move on to the next thing, saving energy in my neural architecture? I see. So I think you're going to say one word, my brain prepares itself for that word and if it's the same word job done move on and if it's not then we have to take a step back and think a bit harder yeah that's exactly right so your auditory cortex which is the first bit of the brain that auditory information goes into sets up a prediction and it only sends forward to other parts of the brain errors from that prediction so if there are no errors if it was correct then it has to send nothing further forward and nothing else has to happen If what comes in is a different word or you're not sure what it was, then it has to work harder in sending information higher up the processing stream to other parts of the brain to work out, okay, he didn't say milk, he said eggs. What was it? You know, how does that change what I'm going to predict next? How did we find out this is what our brains were doing? 
The grand idea is called predictive coding, and there's evidence for predictive coding not just in speech. You know that this is a process that underlies everything that the brain does. The brain is really a predictive engine, and we know that errors in predictive coding underlie a lot of different diseases. So there's evidence that in schizophrenia, predictions go wrong, and that can lead to abnormal perceptions like hallucinations. In tinnitus, predictions go wrong. So you have a lack of input from one part of the ear because of damage there, and that sets up a little bit of noise, and the brain starts to predict that maybe the noise is meaningful, maybe I should pay attention to this noise, and over time that becomes perceived as tinnitus. And even if the noise goes away the prediction that there will be tinnitus remains and there's nothing to counteract that because the ear has died in that part and then you perceive tinnitus as, a, as an interaction of strong predictions about hearing something and nothing meaningful going in. It's interesting you should mention tinnitus because that's a very common condition as I understand it. So we think that this is caused by our predictive systems sort of going into overdrive. Yeah, that, that's the emerging view. So about half of all adults will have some tinnitus if they're in a quiet room and they really concentrate on listening to what's coming into their ears. They'll hear a quiet buzzing or ringing, and that's completely normal. When tinnitus becomes troublesome, it's when that quiet buzzing or ringing gains an abnormal perceptual salience. So people start to attend to that buzzing or ringing, they start to expect that buzzing or ringing, and any information that does come in is interpreted very precisely and that prediction of buzzing or ringing is verified and then the tinnitus essentially ramps up in how irritating it is independent of what the volume of the tinnitus actually is. So predictive mechanisms together with some problem in the ear are what causes tinnitus. When Thomas says the buzzing or ringing can ramp up it can get really really bad. It can stop people from concentrating or from sleeping and potentially ruin lives. This is what it can sound like. Those are simulations from the British Tinnitus Association. So does knowing about this mechanism help us to treat it? Well, yeah, so this is one of the reasons that things like cognitive behavioural therapy for tinnitus can be quite effective, because it's not just a problem of what's going on in the ear causing the perception. It's a problem of how the brain is working subconsciously to really eke out every bit of information it can get from what's essentially noise, ramping up the intensity of this perception. So we know that therapies that reduce the loudness of tinnitus don't necessarily reduce the distress of tinnitus, and these two things need both to be tackled. Thomas Cope from Cambridge University there talking about our predictive mechanisms here on The Naked Sausages. Just testing. So that's how we hear, but what about when the system gets tripped up? What can this tell us about our brains? Have a listen to this. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. But they sometimes behave so strangely, they sometimes behave so strangely, 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 Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. If you're like me, the spoken words suddenly burst into song after hearing it enough times. And this works on a lot of people. Here are some people who heard it looped trying to repeat the phrase. 
Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. And the people who only heard it once. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. This is one of Diana Deutsch's famous audio illusions. She's a professor at University of California, San Diego, and she's been studying and inventing new ways to trick our ears since the 60s, which is when they invented the technology to create these different tones. So she started to experiment with it. One earphone was producing high tone, low tone, high tone, low tone, while the other earphone was producing low tone, high tone, low tone, high tone. I put on the earphones and generated the sounds and listened to them and I was absolutely amazed at what I heard because it wasn't at all what I had entered into the computer. What I was hearing was a single high tone in my right ear alternating with a single low tone in my left ear. So then I switched the headphones around and the same thing happened. I kept on hearing the high tone in the right ear alternating with the low tone in the left ear. And at that point, I thought, well, you know, Either I'm crazy or I've gone into a different universe or something. So I went into the corridor and brought in a few people and they all heard what I was hearing, except for one person who happened to be left-handed who heard the opposite, high tone in the left ear alternating with the low tone in the right ear. And then I realized that, in fact, this must be a new illusion that would be of importance to the understanding of how we hear patterns of tones. What did that reveal to us about the brain? First of all, as a group, right-handers and left-handers differ in what they tend to hear. And this is just what you would expect from the neurological literature on patterns of cerebral dominance in the case of right-handers and left-handers. Most right-handers have the left hemisphere dominant, in fact, for speech, whereas left-handers can go either way. And it had been thought that cerebral dominance was simply a function of speech, but these were musical tones. And so it showed that, in fact, cerebral dominance was more complicated than had been thought, more general than had been thought. Now, this one only works if you have headphones on, but here's one that does work on the radio. It will help if there's someone else in the room with you. I've got fellow producer Izzy Clark with me to help me out. Hiya. So here are a set of paired tones. All we need to do is tell if they're going up or down in pitch. So here's the first one. I mean, that was going up. No, that's going down. Okay, here's the next one. So that was going down. Yeah. Okay, we agree on that one. Okay, good. Up. No, they're still going down. <laughs> you think they're all down? That was definitely going up. No, that's crazy. All, they're all going down. What do you know about music? Loads. <laughs> well, according to Diana Deutsch, we're all wrong or we're all right. There's no real answer. It's ambiguous. Kind of like the audio equivalent of that infamous blue slash gold dress. Out of interest, which colour did you see the dress? Oh, it was white and gold. It was blue and black. Okay, oh, we clearly have very different veins. Get out of here. <laughs> Izzy and I can rest assured that even trained musicians will disagree about this. And Diana's discovered your brain interprets it according to your life experience. It varies depending upon the language or dialect to which they've been exposed, particularly in childhood. So in one experiment, I found that people from the south of England 
tended to hear this pattern of tones in different ways from people who had grown up in California. Now, the pitch range of speech in the south of England is higher on the whole than the pitch range of speech. So in another experiment, I looked to see if this correlated with the pitch range of the speaking voice to which you've been exposed. And in point of fact, that is the case. Why do you think illusions make such a powerful tool for studying hearing? Well, I think that you can learn a great deal about a system when it breaks down. For example, if you have a car that's broken down, you can find out a lot about the way the car works, you know, by sort of examining it and and, and examining the way it's broken down. And that would be true of any piece of equipment. And I think the same is true of illusions um, in perception, both both visual and and in hearing, that um, you can learn a great deal about them by causing them to fail. So I think that illusions perhaps show more about hearing than anything else. So when you hear something correctly, what can you say about it? Well, okay, you're hearing it correctly. But when something goes wrong, then you can start asking, what is it that that's gone wrong and then you can delve into the system and find out more about it that way. So what about the first one we heard? Sometimes behave so strangely. Now we're not exactly sure why this happens but Diana says it provides a clue as to how our brain processes song and that there's a central director somewhere deciding whether to send sound information to be processed as speech or processed as music. My favourite view of what's going on in part is that the, the tonal structure, the structure of pitches, is rather similar to that of a phrase in the Westminster Chimes. Bong, bong, boing, boing. Okay. So it sometimes behaves so strangely. And the rhythm is very similar to the rhythm of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Sometimes behaves so strangely. Okay. So this uh, sort of central director decides, okay, this is song and sends the information to be analysed that way. Diana Deutsch from the University of California, San Diego. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. If you'd like to get in touch with The Naked Scientist, you can tweet at Naked Scientist or find us on Facebook. Plus, this show and all of our others can be found at thenakedscientist.com. This week, you're with me, Georgia Mills, and I'm exploring all things auditory. I'm finding out how hearing works and revealing the amazing job our ears and brain do when decoding the sounds around us. But some ears are better than others. For example, bats can use sounds to pinpoint creatures with incredible accuracy, snatching moths out of the sky by bouncing squeaks back off them. This is called echolocation. But bats aren't the only one who can use echoes to get information. We can do it too, to some extent. Here's an example. It sounds like, from the echoes of my voice, I'm standing in a big room. Or now it sounds like I'm standing in a big cabin. Well, really, I'm just sitting in a studio mucking around with sound effects. You can try it at home with a simple test. Bring a book or a plate in front of your mouth while you talk and you will hear the sound start to change. 
But some of us are so good at interpreting echoes, it can be used to effectively see the world around us. So I'm Jay Steelashar. I'm an orientation and mobility instructor with World Access for the Blind, and I specialize with perceptual mobility techniques, teaching blind people to see through sound and uh, using their cane. I went blind when I was 12 years old, and I had a tiny bit of vision left, but not really any to be functional. I, I knew about echolocation and other kinds of perceptual techniques from actually a Discovery Channel special that had been aired in the United States. And so I just kind of grew up with it in the back of my mind. And then when I went blind, it seemed kind of obvious. I remembered the tongue click, and I remembered a couple of main features of it. And I thought, well, I no longer have my eyes, but I do have my ears, and both should offer me distance perception. So I started clicking around and experimenting and teaching myself what different distances and textures and things sounded like. Then when I was 14, about a year and a half later, I went to a conference of this person named Daniel Kish. I started working with Daniel. He started teaching me, and eventually I became one of his instructors. Could you describe what it's like to me? It's like freedom. So when I click, I make a, t- I make a really small tongue click, so I might say, and what happens is the sound goes out in a cone shape. It tries to wrap around objects, and it tries to go through objects, and then it flashes back to me. And so as I turn my head and I make that noise, I make it every you know few seconds at most, usually not that often. It gives me all these different pictures of the physical structures around me. I might describe it as the world made of mannequins or silhouettes. And I can see all of the physical structures, everything from fences and hedges all the way to buildings, cars, trees, lampposts. And they all have very specific dimensionality, texture, density. It is really the world made up of sound. So effectively, I'm a low vision person moving through the world, even though I'm totally blind. I've been totally blind for about five years now. And I see with my brain, I see everything that's around me, even though I'm not receiving the information visually. Oh, wow. So there is a sort of an image appearing in in your head. And when did this first happen? And did it go straight from sort of nothing to this vision? or, Or did you sort of think this sound means this and it gradually changed over time? That's a very astute question. It did gradually change over time. When I first started, I got sound, but not images. And it took a while for it to become true three-dimensional actual images. Actually, I remember the first time I ever got a true image. It was when I was on a college campus and I was walking past a building and I clicked and I saw the building. I didn't hear it. I saw it. My brain filled in light because I grew up with light. And so my brain filled in a visual image kind of in my head, but I very clearly heard all the angles. And uh, the way in which that came about for me in particular, although it's a little bit different for everyone, was a long period of building what I call a sound catalog, where you do exactly what you described. You kind of discern what sounds go to what distances, what hardnesses, densities, of course. And you build this catalog of sounds where you can assign the sound to a variable and you build your pictures that way. But that turns into an image catalog through the process of neuroplasticity. The brain actually begins processing these sounds through the visual cortex of the brain. And your integrated visual system creates that visual image, even though it's being processed originally through the ears. And so what was that like the first time you saw this building? Mind-blowing. Even though I grew up with it and I, I knew what it was supposed to be one day, I knew what was going to happen. I'd seen the research. And then it happened and it was 
I have no words. I mean, it was seeing. It was seeing as a blind person. So how does this work? How do our ears enable us to effectively see? That's exactly what Lord Taller, with Jay's help, is trying to find out. So what we found is that when we investigate what's happening in the brains of people who have used echolocation for a while and who are blind, uh, we found that when they listen to these faint echo sounds, um, the parts of the brain that, that typically process input through the eyes, so light, is very active. So it does seem to pick up on these echoes. At the same time, the, the part of the brain that processes sound, so the hearing part, is active as well. So what we've done then in a second step is we contrast it. So basically, okay, let's say a person listens to these sorts of echolocation sounds and, you know, we're measuring what's happening in the brain. And then let's compare that with what's happening in the brain when they listen to sounds that do not contain these echoes. So it's sort of still the same sound, but it's just the echoes that are missing. And so when we took the difference in brain activity between these two conditions, the part that really came out as still being very responsive to the echoes was this visual part of the brain. And to us, that was really surprising. It was, it sort of suggests, well, are they actually, you know, seeing with sound, like what's happening? And so in, in research, which, which we've done since then, we're sort of trying to tease apart what it is that's actually going on in these sorts of neural structures and what's the sort of information that they respond to. Right. So is, this, is there some sort of rewiring of the brain going on here then? Yeah, yeah. So people who are blind, um, their brains are organized in a different way as compared to brains of people who are sighted. And that's just the brain being plastic and, and adapting to, you know, whatever it really has to, has to deal with uh, day to day. I mean, even the brains of sighted people reorganize if you learn a new language, if you learn a new skill, like, say, playing tennis or something like this, juggling your brain will reorganize itself. And so this change in the activity of the brain that we've observed in these uh, echolocators, um, that's very consistent with this, you know, knowing that the brain is a plastic organ that reorganizes itself. So what's next? What, what are you looking into at the moment? What do you want to find out? So one thing we're very keen on investigating is how this learning actually takes place and how it changes the brain. So at this point, most of our work, we have sort of taken different groups of people. So, for example, we've worked with people who are sighted and then they newly learn to echolocate or we have worked with people who are blind and newly learn to echolocate. And then we have worked with people who are blind and who are these echolocation experts. And we find, you know, we find these differences in terms of brain activity, in terms of their behavior and so on. And so one thing we are curious is, well, okay, let's say you have a person and they learn to echolocate and let's say you follow them over a period of time, how does their brain change? So will this learning then actually lead to these changes which we have observed in the brains of expert echolocators? So while we wait to understand more about how our brains can do this, more and more people are taking up the skill. It can be taught quickly, according to Jay, and is completely life-changing. The word I always come back to is freedom when people ask me that question. I mean, what is it to be able to see with your brain? What is it to be able to learn a new area very quickly and efficiently with great accuracy, even from distance, and to be able to recreate the world without your eyeballs? it's freedom. It, it means that I can go anywhere I want and do anything I want. And many blind people can say that, but I can do it very quickly and very efficiently 
with a great deal of autonomy. But while this may sound, to me at least, like a superpower, Jay was keen to emphasize this is a skill anyone can learn. It's not special people out there who are just doing this in very small numbers. There are greater and greater numbers of people who are proving that regardless of your background, it seems very learnable and very teachable as long as you have a structured way in which to do it. I just want people to know that it's something that they can attain. That's Jay Steele Lasham, and before him, Lord Taller. You're with me, Georgia Mills, from The Naked Scientist, and this week I'm finding out how we hear. But what happens when the volume on life starts to go down? Hearing loss will affect a staggering one in six of us here in the UK, with some predicting this number is only going to rise. But what causes it? Here's Professor Brian Moore again. There are many causes of hearing loss. There's likely to be a genetic component, so different people vary in their susceptibility to getting hearing loss, and and there are quite a large number of genes now have been identified that affect hearing, and if you have a problem in those genes, you're almost bound to get a hearing loss. But there's also strong evidence that noise can damage hearing. So intense sounds generally, which used to be used, produced mainly by factory noise. Now even leisure noise, very loud concerts and discos can damage your hearing. Or working in the military can be very dangerous as well. And many people are still being deafened by working in the military. There are also many drugs that can affect hearing antibiotics ending in mycin like canamycin and neomycin will poison the ear if they're given in large enough doses and many drugs used to treat cancer particularly ones with platinum in them can damage these hair cells in the inner ear now i'm just worried about being an audio producer (laughs) it's probably not a great experience for my ears Um, do we know why loud noise has this effect and could it be just one very very loud bang or is it over time well again there are probably different mechanisms if you have an exposure to a brief really intense sound like a gunshot or an explosion that can actually produce structural damage inside the cochlea it basically is ripping up the structures which is very nasty but for for more moderate long-term exposures like working in a noisy factory or going to a loud rock concert there seem to be metabolic processes that take place in the cochlea that can actually poison the structures inside the cochlea and it's a bit like if a marathon runner overdoes it all the metabolites that build up in their muscles can poison the muscles and this active mechanism that I talked about requires a high metabolic turnover and if you work it really hard because of intense sounds coming in the chemicals that build up in the cochlea can actually result in the hair cells being poisoned and then they die off and unfortunately once they die they never come back. Oh wow so it's like um, yeah if I were to run well judging by me about five minutes and I'd get a stitch it's like the audio equivalent of a stitch right. and the bad chemicals just build up that's right and of course in in our muscles we have receptors that tell us when things are going wrong it starts to hurt and become painful and then you stop doing it but it's not clear yet whether the ear actually has pain receptors and so we may do all this damage to our ears without actually feeling anything bad going on so that's a real problem I think So please do adjust your sets and turn down the volume. But it is being predicted that with our current music behaviours, hearing loss is going to continue to rise. 
people are always being told to sort of turn down their iPods or whatever it is. But actually, there is a bit of an epidemic of hearing loss coming for for the young as well. And you can completely see why, because, you know, most music or a lot of rock music is not supposed to be heard quietly. It's designed to be loud. You know, with all that I know about hearing, I still want to stand next to the amps because that's the only way that you get that thud in your in your heart, in your bones. Bella Bathurst is the author of the book Sound. She knows exactly what it's like to go deaf as when she turned 27, she started to lose 50% of her hearing. Sounds that had previously been audible like station announcements or people's voices or laughter or whatever it was just became inaudible so the sound of a mobile in another room had previously been easy to hear and and then it became difficult to hear so it was a sort of gradual muffling but one of the odd things about hearing loss is that it makes you more aware of acoustics and your sound environment not less what what do you mean by that i just became completely obsessed with rooms and spaces so there are certain situations which are much more difficult doesn't matter what kind of hearing aids you've got and what kind of amplification outside where sound is very echoey and it gets blown away very easily is much more difficult than a nice muffled low ceilinged room with lots of carpet and lots of fabrics Mm, the kind of rooms I look to record in with absolutely. <laughs> with <my equipment. laughs> I was looking at the the, the studio here and thinking, mm, ideal acoustic environment. And so, with this time when you lost fifty percent of your hearing, did that did that stay consistent? No, it kept on dropping. So um, by about two thousand and nine, which is when I was re-diagnosed, um, it was down to about thirty percent in both ears. Probably slightly worse in the left ear. And how did that change your life? I've always been a writer and I've always the the bit of the job that I always enjoy most is is interviewing and I worried most of all that that it was making me unprofessional because I when I would play back those interviews I would hear how many times I hadn't heard or had misheard or had come out with a completely uh, wrong connection or something, and I really, I, I really hated that. I thought that was, I thought that was terrible, and so I felt very guilty and rather ashamed. And I also felt sort of horrified at the idea that I might be blanking people without meaning to. I also resented, I think, going deaf aged twenty seven. I disliked the stigma that deafness has, that it's that it's to do with age and, I'm afraid to say, stupidity. People see deafness as something that's connected to slowness. And I fought those things quite hard and then I just got exhausted and then I just got depressed, which is, I think, common to a lot of people with hearing loss, that what it wants to do, what deafness wants to do, is to push you away from your fellow human beings and into a state of isolation. I mean, one of the things that I realised when I started researching the book, which I found completely fascinating, was that without prompting, without me looking for it, every single person who I spoke to who who had hearing loss said, 
I find it completely exhausting. I sleep like I've been clubbed. I need 10 hours of sleep a night, at, at night or whatever. People do find it completely knackering. And, and, and again, people tend to sort of blame themselves for, for, for finding it knackering. Hearing aids are usually the first port of call for someone who's losing their hearing. These essentially turn up the volume by receiving sounds through a microphone, boosting the volume electronically, before rebroadcasting the sounds into the ear through a tiny speaker. They can make a big difference, but in some situations, like when you're outside or in a busy room, or for some types of deafness, they aren't very effective. But there's a lot of work into improving them. Here's Brian again. One thing that people are working on that's still in the future is that you would actually pick up electrical signals from the person's brain to decide who they were trying to listen to and then you would steer the beam in that direction uh, but that's still some way ahead but there's a there is a large research group working on that right now that's incredible so sort of really smart hearing yeah. aids who can yes. decide actually you're finding this person really boring just shut right. them up and yes. <laughs> turn out the yes. other exactly yes i mean what we do have already are hearing aids that you can control from smartphones and you can use the smartphone to control the operation of the hearing aid to some extent and set it up in different situations but the smartphones can also do what's called geotagging where they remember how you set up the hearing aid in a specific situation and when you next go back to that same place it says oh this is the same location as before and it automatically sets up the hearing aid to the right settings for that situation. That's incredible. So I guess, yeah, compared to like my, my glasses that are just pieces of glass, yeah. um, this they have to be very active um, right. and clever machines yeah, to get yeah. the same. Yes. And I mean, nowadays, hearing aids are, are miniature computers and they pack a lot of computing power into a very small space, all operating off 1.1 volts. <laughs> yeah. Wow, because I know when I'm editing sound and sort of changing the pitches, um, my software takes about five minutes to do it. Right. It has to do it all in real time. Yes, yes. this has to all be done in, in real time. Uh, and it's got so complicated that I think e even within one manu manufacturer of hearing aids, there's no single person who understands how everything in the hearing aid works. Each person does sort of one block in the processing and then somebody tries to put it all together, but it requires a big team to get all these things working in a coordinated way. Wow, so optometrists have it easy. <laughs> yes, they do indeed. <laughs> yeah. Now, if the inner ear is damaged, sometimes a cochlear implant can work. The implant converts sound into an electrical signal and it stimulates the cochlear nerve directly. These have restored hearing for the first time in some people who were born profoundly deaf. But these two aren't suitable for everyone, so scientists are looking into other ways to restore hearing. And given that an estimated 50% of hearing loss is genetic, gene therapy could be promising. Here's Jeff Holt from Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Well, some of the techniques we're working on in my lab, and others are also interested in this, are, are gene therapy. So if we can identify a gene that has a mutation that leads to hearing loss, the goal would be to introduce the correct DNA that doesn't have a mutation, a healthy gene in other words, reintroduce that back into the sensory cells of the inner ear and thereby restore function. Right, how would you how would you go about doing that? So the strategy we've been using is to engineer a viral vector 
We take a, a virus that's known as adeno-associated virus. This is present in, in most human populations. It doesn't cause disease, but we can engineer it, remove the viral genes, and then insert any gene of interest, any DNA sequence we'd like to put into the ear. Viruses are actually particularly good at carrying DNA sequences into cells, so the virus will do its job, carry the DNA that we've inserted into the sensory cell of the ear, and then the ear knows what to do with that gene to make the correct protein and restore function. Right. So just as an example, say um, if the DNA didn't know how to code for the, for the hair cells properly, you would get a virus to sort of sneak in the right segment of DNA. That would then go into where it's meant to be and start being used by the cell to start building a hair cell properly. Exactly. That sounds brilliant. So does it work? So far, we've tested it in mouse models, and remarkably, it does work. We can take a deaf mouse and allow them to recover sensitivity to sounds as soft as a whisper. And can this intervention happen at any age of the mouse, or does it have to happen while it's still, still developing? That really depends on the specific gene we're targeting. Some genes don't turn on until late in development or only at mature stages. Some are critical at very early stages of development. So there may be a window, a therapeutic window of opportunity, which we would want to intervene before that window is closed. And it really has to be dissected out on a gene-by-gene -gene basis. In some cases, we've seen that it's required to put the gene back in at, at early stages, but in other cases, we think we can do it later. So it has not been tested in humans yet, but that's something that we're working towards, and there's growing interest in trying to move this to the clinic. What barriers do you need to cross before we can give this a go? Well, we need to identify the suitable patients to, to target for a clinical trial. We also need to confirm that there's uh, s enough safety data. We want to make sure we're not making the situation any worse or making uh, anybody sick with side effects and so forth. Once we've got those two bits confirmed, then we need to find the funding to be able to do this. But I think if we pull those three together, we should be able to begin a clinical trial for gene therapy in humans for hearing loss. Oh, right. So as far as we know, there are no sort of massive scientific barriers, at least, that would stop us from, from at least attempting this. That's right. I, I think the science is showing that it should be possible. That's the genetic side of things. What about using stem cells? So there are a number of approaches for using stem cells to try to regenerate the inner ear. Some of them currently are to take a, a stem cell in the lab in a dish and grow it into an inner ear organoid. An organoid is something that would resemble or look like the inner ear, containing the sensory hair cells as well as the neurons that would connect the hair cells, the sensory cells, to the brain. Those might be used to test or screen for, for other drugs, but eventually they could possibly be used in a transplantation-type situation where you could transplant a whole organoid into a, a deaf ear and maybe recover function. I think that's a little further off. Some of the other approaches that are being explored at the moment are to see if we can reawaken the native stem cell-ness of cells that are present in the ear and cause them to differentiate and become new sensory hair cells. How hard is it to build um, a, mini, a mini ear in a dish then? How, have you managed it yet? Yes, we have managed it. And we start by using stem cells that are pluripotent, meaning they could become any of a number of different cell types. And we provide a couple of the correct factors that, that 
cause them to head towards an inner ear uh, cell type. And then we leave them alone. We let them follow their own path. Just giving them a little bit of a push at the beginning leads them down the right path, and we eventually, after 30 to 60 days, end up with something that looks like uh, an inner ear. And then you can use this to test various drugs on and see how they would work in a human ear without risking a human's ear. Exactly. It's a great model system to be able to screen uh, pharmaceutical compounds as well as some of the gene therapy compounds I mentioned earlier. In terms of getting stem cells into an ear, we're far away from this, but what are the challenges involved in getting something like this to work? So there are still a few challenges. We need to be able to make the correct cell type, and if we introduce that correct cell then into the ear, it needs to be integrated into a complex organ so that it's oriented properly, it's stimulated properly in response to sound, and so that it's corrected properly with the neurons that transmit information to the brain. And are there any risks with a technique like this? Well, with stem cells, this hasn't really been done in humans too much yet. Um, There are always risks that the stem cells could differentiate into some unwanted cell type. Mm -hmm. And would this be something like, um, well, either something you don't want or could it become cancerous as well? That's always a possibility. The inner ear, luckily, there are no native cancers in the inner ear, but we would want to be cautious about putting some new cell type in the ear that could differentiate into something pathogenic. So perhaps genetic therapy could reduce genetic deafness down the line. And if we can make sure those stem cells turn into the right cells and don't become cancerous, they could one day help people who do wish to restore their hearing. Bella's hearing came back to her through an operation after she was re-diagnosed with what we now know to be a curable condition. She described her first experience hearing music again. When I'd had those operations, um, I did have this extraordinary experience of listening to music for the first time without any artificial amplification and it did absolutely blow my mind. It was it was extraordinary because it was about six weeks after the second operation and a friend of mine had got tickets, a rather cultured friend of mine, had got tickets to go and see the Berlin Philharmonic playing Schubert and Haydn, neither of whom I really knew anything about. And Simon Rattle kind of walked to the, the, the podium and he raised his baton. And then it was just like something completely, a sort of sort of all-body experience. It was like the sound didn't just just enter my ears. It sort of, it was like standing under a waterfall. It was a kind of complete physical experience. It was like it was sort of resetting my cells or something. It was absolutely extraordinary. It just poured through me and... It was like the sort of fuse box came back on again. It was properly mind-blowing. Thank you so much to all of my guests this week. That's Bella Bathurst, Law Taller, Jeffrey Holt, Jay steele Lashar, Brian Moore, Thomas Cope, Jenny Beasley and Diana Deutsch. Now, in a normal show, at this point, we'd come to question of the week. But seeing as it's Sensors Month, we're instead picking out a super sensor from the animal kingdom to tell you about. So which animal has the best hearing? It's not the large-eared elephant or the echolocating bat. Here's James Windmill from the University of Strathclyde to present the case for the humble moth. Everyone has seen moths fluttering around a streetlight. But did you know that the commonplace moth has one of the most sophisticated ears in the world? And moths need to have good hearing, thanks to their predators, bats, who find them, of course, by using their high-pitched squeaks. So if a moth can hear those squeaks, 
it knows when it's about to get got. To do this, they have what appears to be the simplest possible ear, an eardrum with only a couple of sensory cells connected to it. As a mechanical sensor system, this would just tune to a set frequency range. Unfortunately then for the moth, some bats change the frequency of their sonar call as they approach their insect prey, in order to get a better signal. However, some moths' ears can change their frequency tuning when they hear ultrasound, pre-empting the bat's frequency change, a feat no other insect ear can do. This moth then can effectively tune in to detect the bat's incoming squeaks, but some other moths have even more impressive hearing. Other moth species have evolved incredibly wideband frequency ears, enjoying the highest frequency hearing of any animal on the planet. To put that into context, us humans can hear up to about 20,000 hertz. Mice can hear up to 70,000 hertz. But the greater wax moth can hear up to 300,000 hertz. And this was only discovered recently by James and co because previous researchers had given up before they found the upper limit. And that's not all. Very recently, it was discovered that one species of moth that makes their own ultrasonic chirps has ears that can separately tell the direction that ultrasound is coming from. All other animals use both ears together to get directional information, making that one moth species the only animal known in the world where a single ear gives it sound direction. So there you have it. If only moths could use their super hearing to not fly into light bulbs. Thanks very much to James Windmill for presenting this week's case for our super sensor. If you have an idea for a candidate for one of the other big senses, drop a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Next week's Sense Month continues as we've got sight in our sights. Do join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.